The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. You're listening to the Jackie Daly Show. Join us online, JackieDaly.com, on Facebook and on Twitter at Jackie Daly Show. And on demand, this show and all shows on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, or the iHeartRadio app. After the 20th century, you would think that there would be no mystery left whatsoever anymore about which system is superior, capitalism or communism. And if you have any confusion about this, about who really won the Cold War, about what truly leads to the, the maximization of human freedom and prosperity, you know what? Go to the Victims of Communism Museum in Washington, D.C. If you haven't seen this, I highly recommend it. And I really think that all high school students should be required to go to Washington, make a trip, visit the Victims of Communism Museum and the Holocaust Museum. You know what? It's the same thing. Both centralized governments. Ask any political science professor what's the difference between communism and, and um, you know, the socialism of the Nazis, and they'll say it's, it's the propaganda. You know, one looks backward to a, a great time, and one looks forward to some great unrealized utopia. So who cares about the propaganda? You never, ever, ever judge politicians by what they say. You judge them by what they do. And you cannot discern the difference between the two. People who work in oil and gas probably have a unique perspective on the Cold War and on the activities and goings-on of petro-states. When I say petro-states, I'm talking about countries like those that belong to OPEC and also Russia or the former Soviet Union um, that basically rely upon oil and gas revenues, not, maybe not exclusively, but certainly almost exclusively, to make their budgets. They do not exist as a state if oil or gas plummets or bottoms out. They, they risk state failure and default. That's how serious it is. It's hard for you and me to relate to that in a country like ours that actually has built an economy over the past 200 and some odd years and maybe 300 uh, with oil and gas being maybe 10% um, of the GDP. And, and of course, it is the backbone of all the other industries. Nonetheless, uh, it is not uh, the make or break for the U.S. Well, my friend Jack Ekstrom in Colorado, who you know has been on this show before, uh, often to talk about Colorado fracking controversies, which we'll get to in a little bit, uh, has written a post on his website, which is policyworksamerica.com. That's policyworksamerica.com. It's titled Bolsheviks at 100, the legacy of Soviet wreckage buddies up to the Saudis. So Jack has spent decades in oil and gas. He used to be with Whiting Petroleum up in Colorado. And uh he retired and then I think unretired and now is doing his own thing uh, with energy advocacy up in the state of Colorado. Jack, welcome back to the Jackie Daly Show. Thank you, Jackie. It's great to be with you. Uh, missed you, but uh, glad to be back. Missed you too. It's been way too long. Maybe it's been like a yeah. year since the last time we discussed Colorado fracking and there's so much to catch up on on that front uh, for sure. So I know you've got the inside information. You're my man on the ground in Colorado, Jack. I look to you for leadership and, and to keep the ear to the ground. Um, but first, 
Let's talk about your post on the Bolsheviks. I saw it on LinkedIn and I'm like, I got to call Jack to come on the show and talk about that because you're an oil guy. So what you say about the Bolsheviks is going to carry a lot more weight with me than some political science professor uh, or even an economist, maybe. So um, tell us what your post is all about. Well, my post um, more or less uh, reviews what has happened with uh, a state that is essentially a one-trick pony. Um, The Soviets and uh, the post-Soviet economy uh, of of Russia is based almost exclusively on uh, petrodollars from natural gas supplies to uh, Europe, uh, crude supplies to its client states, and to uh, purchasing and propping up uh, uh, rogue states like Syria and um, and Iran. Uh, absent those dollars, about the only thing the Russians have to sell is uh, what I call second-rate vodka, because everybody knows the best vodka in the world comes from uh, Poland. <laughs> So they're not going to survive on uh, Stolishnoya dollars. Right. They're going to, uh, if they are to survive, it's going to have to be on petrodollars and natural gas dollars. And the fracking revolution or evolution in this country has turned um, their blood to run cold because they are running scared, as well they should be. Uh, the price of crude is... Uh, has risen uh, some recently, but uh, this driving it down from a hundred dollars a barrel down to where it was under thirty for a while, and then for a long time the price had a four handle on it instead of a five, and now it's in the mid fifties to maybe the upper mid fifties. Uh, that's helping them, but uh, the the specter of dramatically increased production in the United States scares them. So where do they go? There aren't a lot of options for the, uh, what I called in my post, the shirtless runt that runs the, uh, (laughs) uh, the Russian economy. Would that be Vlad Um, Putin, the shirtless runt? Yes, that would be, uh, the delightful and charming Mr. Putin. Mm -hmm. Um, he, uh, he has actually lowered himself to going to the people who put the Soviet Union out of business. Because back in the late 80s and the early 90s, the Russians were victimized by a conscious policy of the United States and the Saudis um, to drive the price of crude into the ground and bankrupt Russia, which is exactly what happened. Thus, the the, the Star Wars gambit by President Reagan scared Gorbachev to death. We offered to give him the uh, technology, which, as we know, was kind of a, uh, a, a tremendous gamble by Reagan, offered to give them the technology and they could implement their own Star Wars uh, facility themselves. Well, with the price of crude having plunged to single digits, mm-hmm. they simply didn't have the money so they couldn't play the game. And the, the game was up. They, we went through the whole glasnost charade and all of that, trying to 
uh, Gorbachev trying to uh, uh, join the, the the world as it was then and not carry on this horrifying uh, uh whatever you want to call it. I, I can think of some things that we shouldn't say on the radio, right. but um, uh, this, this uh, charade of, of performance and uh, this wonderful Russia is a great country and all of that. When they simply didn't have it, they, they couldn't do it. You, you went through the Brezhnev thing and then drop off in Chernyanko and all these old geezers that uh, were running this organization and ran it into the ground because they could never produce enough to feed their own people. But when the price of crude was high and the price of natural gas was rising, they could kind of get along. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show, and we're continuing a conversation with Jack Ekstrom of PolicyWorksAmerica.com up in Denver. And that's why they're, you know, what do you do now? How do you build from the bottom up the capitalistic spirit? So, Jack, what do you think? But when the Saudis, with the cooperation of President Reagan, flooded the market with crude, Russia went bankrupt. Right. So, fast forward to today, it appears that the very same scenario is playing out. And Mr. Putin has gone to Russia or has gone to uh, Saudi Arabia, sorry, and uh, their client states in OPEC to try to cut back on production and get the price to get uh, into some sort of recovery. Right. It doesn't appear likely that that's going to work. Well, they can't they can't trust each other. I mean, most of the time, right, when OPEC makes an agreement as as the the lead country in OPEC says we cheat. That's Saudi Arabia telling the wall street journal. They can't trust each other. Everyone's cheating. They can't trust each other. And <laughs> it's amazing because all of the, all of the, all of these countries cheat. And that's, that's perfect for Russia because they have a history of a hundred years of cheating on virtually everything. In fact, Jackie, <laughs> you, you, I'm sure you know this, perhaps your listeners aren't aware of it. Just a week or two ago, some of their athletes had to give back medals from Sochi. Oh yeah. The Olympics that were held in Russia yes. because of cheating oh. and drugging and so forth. <laughs> it is, it is their stock in trade. So to have them have to go to an organization that cheats on its own members is kind of poetic justice for um, our friends in uh, Moscow. And it, it is exactly, you know, they they cannot, why can they never win on the merits, right? I mean, you know, as, as John McCain has said, that country, that Russia is basically, you know, a gas station with nuclear weapons, as you point out exactly. uh, in your article here. And, you know, it, it, I, we often talk about winning the Cold War. The truth is, as you point out, they would have had no country, no movement, there would have been no Cold War. There would have been no communism, but for they were a petro state. If that country didn't happen to have vast resources under its feet, it never would have happened in the first place. You know, if they had been Japan, 
let's say. See, the Japanese are actually enterprising, hardworking people who build things like economies. Uh, you know, they don't have natural resources, perhaps, and have to import them. Uh, different country. But in Russia, it's a matter of what they just happen to have. It was put there, right, by God. It, they didn't do anything to earn the oil and gas being there uh, as their property, unless you count conquest long ago before they even knew it was there. Um, whereas the U.S. actually builds an economy and competes. So, you know, I even think it's not even fair to say communism, look, it endured for decades and decades. Well, did it really? What, what, what philosophy could not endure for <laughs> decades and decades if you had a gold mine of oil and natural gas under your feet? I mean, it's artificially propped up in that respect. And uh, now because there's no rule of law and enforcement of contracts, they were never able to build uh, the economy when, right. finally, when finally communism bottomed out. So, Jack, I have to go to break. Um, okay. When we come back, well... We'll decide what to do when we come back. We're talking with Jack Ekstrom, and he is with PolicyWorksAmerica.com. That's PolicyWorksAmerica.com. Go to that website. You can see what we're talking about. We're discussing Jack's piece, which is called Bolsheviks at 100, The Legacy of Soviet Wreckage, Buddies Up to the Saudis. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show, and we're continuing the conversation with Jack Ekstrom of PolicyWorksAmerica.com, talking about his piece, Bolsheviks at 100, The Legacy of Soviet Wreckage, Buddies Up to the Saudis. And uh, before we went to break, you know, I just pointed out that the the Russians do not have innovation. They do not have an entre- entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, it's not part of the culture. It's not something that's been taught because it has to be taught. It has to be passed down culturally. And there's never been incentive. You know, it's not that the people of Russia uh, aren't wonderfully intelligent and even educated. It's not that they're not capable. It's that they've lived under a system for decades and decades that does not reward them for hard work or innovation. It confiscates anything that they create or build or earn uh, and gives it to the state. And that's why they're, you know, what do you do now? How do you build from the bottom up the capitalistic spirit? So... Jack, what do you think? We were I was contrasting Japan and, and Russia. Is that a fair contrast of opposites? Those are diametric opposites and it's a, it's worth exploring because Japan has a a fantastic spirit of entrepreneurship and and creativity. They they've also become very good at harnessing technology. I don't know that they're as creative as some economies are, but they're very good and very productive and very hardworking. The the difference is that they had no resources, but yet they're, um, they've had some rough patches, but I'd say by and large, the world would perceive that Japan is a thriving, vital economy. Uh, Russia, on the other hand, has had enormous wealth in resources and has wasted that huge gift that it was given in in creation by spending the money on weapons, on armies, on gulags, on torture, and on all of the the things that degrade society. Uh, As I said in uh, um, in my blog post, 
I characterize the communist experience in, in Russia as the bathtub ring around the human experience. Right. It's, uh, it's simply a, a stain that will not go away. Um, instead of investing in their people, they invested in a state and in declaring themselves to be an important factor in world history when they actually offered nothing. Um, and one of the other th- observations I made in my I po- my post was um, though the revolution of the workers and the workers being freed and the workers being in charge and so uh, welcome to coercion and misery and uh, prison camps, comrade. Uh, yeah. Hope you enjoy it. Well, and um, it- the, the the contrast, obviously, Jackie's. We've talked about when we we're talking about doing this is. Uh, the United States, where we have a tremendous resource in oil and gas, but it's not the dominant resource and it's not the dominant uh, uh, driver of our economy. It is a cornerstone, one of a number. It is a cornerstone, nevertheless, and it's it's important. It's a wealth creator. Um, one of the great lines I heard early in my career was that um, you drill a hole and money comes out. <laughs> and that is exactly true. And by the way, nothing happens in this economy or in any economy until somebody digs a hole in the earth and extracts the earth's riches and harnesses them for the good of mankind. Um, that's a simple fact. Well, you know, the I gave a speech in Midland at the Petroleum Club, and I started it out by saying a people will a people's future will be determined by two things. Number one, the ideas that they collectively hold. Number two, their physical resources. And by ideas, I said, you know, I'm talking about here, what do you believe about personal responsibility versus entitlement, about communism versus capitalism? And if you're a religious person, what God do you serve? Is it a God that rewards you or punishes you based on your individual acts? Or does it just matter what caste you're born into? You know, do you believe in fatalism? And so these are the big ideas that really define the future of a people. And I remember learning just as a little girl from my family that communists don't permit anyone to believe anything other than in the state. So all religion is stamped out because they view it as a threat to the state. You see that in China. You see that in Russia. Uh, You know, the, the polar opposite would be in the United States. One of my friends came from Australia. She's like, when I grew up in Australia, there were two churches, Episcopalian and Catholic. I come here. She's like, on one street, I have 12 churches. They all have a different name. You know, that's a sign of, of religious freedom, like robust religious freedom. And, uh, you know, the, to control to control even a person's belief is about as much of a stranglehold. It's not just controlling their physical environment and their uh, wealth aggregation and property. You're controlling their hearts and minds, and that's what's required. Uh, so that that's why that state becomes so scary. And what I really think is the biggest, scariest part of why it doesn't work when you strangle them out spiritually and mentally you know you're what's left that you can't build innovation and capitalism something absolutely. so basic on absolutely. top of people who don't think absolutely nothing there is certainly no hope left no right and hope costs nothing right it costs nothing right. and yet they'd they'd steal it from their people and it's it's what it's all it's what the whole economy is built on is hopes and dreams and so um I'm I'm so glad that you wrote this piece because this is not this really is is not a point that is dr- driven home nearly often enough. And as you say, you know what? It's like 
it's not cool to be a, a, a neo-Nazi or um, any number of things, but people give the, the communist a pass these days. You got kids running around with Che Guevara t-shirts on. You know, what's wrong with these people? And obviously they, they haven't been educated appropriately. Uh, they'd be far better Clearly. off. And I don't know what happened. I don't know where it all went wrong. I'm not that old, Jack. I'm 41 years old. <laughs> you know, when I was going to school, we still, uh, in Southern Ohio at least, we still said prayers twice a day in the public schools, first thing in the yes. morning and at lunchtime. We still saluted the flag. Um, I really don't have any recollection of anything politically incorrect ever happening in public schools in the early 80s. And so uh, most of the damage apparently has been done uh, since I have departed, which wasn't too long ago. I know we have to go to break again, Jack, um, but I want to tell everyone to read, because I read it word for word, uh, the piece that you have at policyworksamerica.com. Again, it's called Bolsheviks at 100. The legacy of Soviet wreckage buddies up to the Saudis. And the reference to the Saudis being that the Russians and the Saudis and OPEC are now colluding in an attempt uh, to improve the oil price, maybe the Saudis because they have an IPO coming up, Russians because they have to have it to survive to prevent state failure. And if you don't understand that um, or you're not familiar with this dynamic, which is what's governing world affairs and most of the Middle East turbulence, uh, take a look at Jack's article. Again, it's policyworksamerica.com. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk to Jack about what's going on with the fracking debate in Colorado. We'll be back. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. I'm Jackie. I bring years of experience in law, policy, and energy to provide an independent view for solutions that bring America greater energy security. I want you to know from the outset, this show is neither a subsidiary of nor a paid advertisement for any energy corporation. All opinions expressed are my own. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show, and we're talking with Jack Ekstrom with PolicyWorks America up in Denver, Colorado. Jack has spent decades in the oil and gas industry and is now retired and doing his own thing, which is energy advocacy. Jack, I know, and I've been talking on the show for years, about the ongoing war in Colorado between some of the fringier parts of the environmental movement and the rest of the state and its economy, uh, that part of it certainly, which is based in oil and gas. There's going to be a fracking ban proposed and uh, at least a, a large effort expended to ban hydraulic fracturing in the entire state of Colorado effectively. And uh, that's a really big deal. Last I checked, it was about $31 billion or so in GDP to the state. We're talking about lots and lots of jobs. And um, this will be the, I believe, the third attempt to get the ban on the ballot that I'm aware of. And maybe I've missed some of the earlier history. I know that last election, uh, the city of Broomfield made a statement uh, on its ballot against hydraulic fracturing or fracking, uh, and that went in the favor of the militant Greens or the more fringier parts of the Green movement rather than uh, being pro-development and prosperity or pro-fracking. So that's what I know about it, Jack, and I know a little bit more. Um, What is the situation on the ground in Colorado right now? I mean, first of all, are we 100% sure that there's going to be 
a fracking ban on the ballot next year? Well, as as you call them, the fringier parts, <laughs> I like that, um, will certainly make the attempt. Uh, we, we've had some interesting developments. The municipalities in uh, on, the, on the fringes of, if, forgive me, the fringes of the Denver-Julesburg Basin are attempting to uh, assume control of drilling and fracking operations. And as you know, and I'm sure your listeners know, fracking is nothing but a, about a day-long process in the, in the uh, operation of completing uh, a well to be a producing well. The, uh, uh, the, the oil and gas bearing formations are, are cracked with sand and, and water and propped open so that the hydrocarbon can flow to the wellbore. It's a fairly simple process, uh, fairly benign, uh, is not uh, in any way harmful to air or water supplies, so forth. We've all heard those arguments. But um, these municipalities uh, insist on attempting to regulate when the state has primacy. <clears throat> and municipalities, including the People's Republic of Boulder, uh, Louisville, uh, Broomfield, Superior, Erie, uh, other places where movie stars like to show up and uh, ride in parades and give out autographs and things like that, um, have encouraged this kind of behavior. And the reality is the development, the real estate development, the residential developments are moving toward where the oil and gas operations have been centered and it, it's kind of like people who move in uh, to a neighborhood and the airplanes are going over and going over and they move in knowing full well the airport's there but they complain about the noise right um, yeah. this is the same kind of thing they're trying to ban an activity where leases have been uh, held for years perhaps even decades operations have been ongoing perhaps they're extending a little bit further to the east where these municipalities are trying to expand. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a conundrum for uh, homeowners who perhaps have not been told by real estate developers that they are purchasing or developing in an active oil and gas zone uh, or an, an active field and that there are uh, split estate leases underneath the property that they're purchasing on the surface. So, but Jack, um, let me ask a question but, for people. Go ahead. Who, I'm sorry. For people who are not familiar or don't live near fracking, um, wouldn't it be true that most of this is going on thousands of feet beneath the earth's surface? So, yes. you know, so what, what would be the complaint of a homeowner who's living next to something that's happening maybe a mile beneath the ground? What, what is it they have to complain about? There, the the typical complaint, which was uh, the the cause, uh, the celebrity cause of Jared Polis, who was running for governor, was that he didn't like the drilling rig in his backyard. Okay. Well, the drilling rig is there. It takes maybe a week and a half or two and a half at the at the at the most to drill a well in the Denver Julesburg Basin. And yes, it's there's some dust. There are trucks that drive back and forth, but uh, the landowner who who has the drilling rig on his property gets a uh, uh, a payment for use of the surface and an entry to the uh, 
essentially a window uh, to uh, access the resource a mile or a mile and a half down. Uh, it's it's mostly about the drilling rig and about perhaps production facilities that end up on the surface. But most of those, in fact, virtually all of those in Colorado are are on land that is bought and paid for by the oil and gas company to either the surface owner or the oil and gas company buys the surface so that what they have there, the tank battery, is uh, resident and permitted by the oil and gas commission. But there are those, and we certainly have them here, the not-in-my-backyard types or the banana types build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. Um <laughs> And by I've the way, there's a third that one that I like even better. Okay. It's called Nope, not on planet Earth. <laughs> right. <laughs> not not so, even near planet Earth, right. Not, yeah, not, not on planet Earth. But you, these people are never going to change their minds. They simply must be uh, taken to court, which the oil and gas industry has done. And in fact, the attorney general has supported those uh, lawsuits defending the primacy of the state to regulate oil and gas activity. Right. And every municipality has lost. Yet they continue to attempt to assert this local control. And actually, they have the support of a gentleman running for governor, Jared Polis, uh, who actually funded the ballot initiative on the last right. in 2014. So, Jack, so, is I, he? Am I right that he is the front runner right now, and on the at yes, least on the is. Democrat ticket? Okay, and yes. I, I know him because he served on the House Judiciary Committee in Washington when I was a yes. staffer there, and so I'm well familiar. And he would uh, probably be oil and gas's worst nightmare, I think, um, as governor, and based on everything I know about him. And uh, the question would be. You know, I, I, I well, I really think that what they're doing there with these municipalities clearly moving in violation of the law after it's been well established in the very recent past, they're they're doing a PR campaign. This is all, yes. I think, just a matter of keeping it in the press, keeping their messaging up, having a news hook for what it is that they want to sell it to the public. Uh, you know, fallacies that have been disproven over and over about fracking uh, and health and safety risks uh, brought to a community uh, from fracking. And, and I think it's a successful strategy, right? Because it, we saw what happened in Broomfield when the vote came out. Uh, my understanding is that, and this is only what money is reported, but that the uh, pro-energy development side outspent the other side many times over and lost by about 15 points at the ballot box yes. with the people of Broomfield. And that is outrageous. It, it is it is. Prima facie evidence that there is no proper um, discussion being had. If the, if the people had the right information, I think they would use it. I don't know if it's a, it happens to be a particularly um, mm, liberal area uh, or not, but it, it is on the, on the front range and not too far from Boulder, I know. Um, but what do you see in terms of ground game, aside from these local fights that I think they're using as news hooks, what is the other side doing? Uh, to prepare the battlefield for next fall's vote, if it happens. Well, the, the um, organization, the really effective community outreach organization that the industry has formed has been going door to door every day since this effort began back in 2014. Okay. And that effort continues even, 
even the day after an election, the effort continues. Um, I, I fully expect that kind of effort to continue. I fully expect um, uh, this ballot initiative to lose. Uh, should it get on the ballot? I'm not sure that uh, the Tom Steyers of the world or the, <coughs> the uh, other backers have the wherewithal to continue this battle and continue to lose. Mm -hmm. I am uh, anticipating a, a vigorous battle, but I think it's a battle that the industry wins again. So, okay. So when you were saying going door to door, you're talking about the industry's ground game uh, yes. in Colorado. Okay. And then yes. what are you seeing from the other side in terms of their ground game? Actually, I'm not seeing very much right now. Um, these are pretty much, municipality based i'm not seeing at this point I mean, we're your way I'm not seeing any statewide effort um my impression is that this side of the political aisle is somewhat in disarray and is focused more on uh the never trump kind of mindset than they are specifically on oil and gas. The industry's done a pretty good job of uh, describing its contribution to the economy. It pretty much pays for education in this state or right. the, the bulk of it. Right. Um, well, municipalities have this, this uh, parochial interest here in, in their borders, within their borders. It's not really a statewide movement as yet, but I am... Um, uh, not sanguine about the prospects of that continuing. Okay. Um, and then am I correct that they have until what, August of next year to get the signatures together? And then there's a minimal amount of signatures that they must have before they're able to succeed in putting it on the ballot. Um, they've succeeded in that before, right? So in 2014, they had the signatures, but I think a, yes. a truce was brokered between the two sides uh, to form the commission to try to work things out. Um, and in 2016, they failed. So, um, okay, I, what do you think, I mean, what do the people of Colorado need to understand? What is the message that needs to get out to them in advance of this debate coming up? The industry continues to uh, uh, advance technologically. It is, in fact, a technology play. Um, the footprint continues to shrink. Um, we're drilling the wells faster, more efficiently. Um, the need for the economic value delivered via severance and property taxes is crucial to the state economy. And in fact, it, it affects uh, very few locales in the state, and those are the uh, economic centers and the employment centers, which are right. typically in Grand Junction, in Durango, and of course, primarily uh, in and around Greeley in the northeastern quadrant of the state, there there is no way this state would be able to absorb its its uh, its commitments without the money that comes from oil and gas. And that's exactly what uh, the people of Colorado need to know. Right. All that, right. Uh, and if if they are in fact. Uh, personally impacted if they if they are a surface 
property owner or potentially a surface property owner, working with oil and gas companies is not all that difficult. Uh, Jack, say that, the, say that past, thought. They were, not as good, they were not as good as they should be. Jack, I, I have to now, go to break. I have to go to break. Okay, They're saying I have to go. So give me just a second. We're going to go to break. Sure. We'll continue the conversation okay. with Jack Ekstrom. He's with PolicyWorksAmerica.com. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show, and we're continuing a conversation with Jack Ekstrom of PolicyWorksAmerica.com up in Denver about the upcoming uh, vote in an attempt to ban fracking or hydraulic fracturing in the state of Colorado that I think will be on the ballot in 2018, assuming that the uh, fringier parts of the Green Movement succeed in getting together the required signatures to get the ban on the ballot. It would not have been the first time in that state. So, Jack, before we left... Uh, you were talking about the fact that, you know, if people in Colorado have complaints about the industry working in their backyard, it's actually not that difficult to work with the oil and gas community to solve problems. So I want you to complete that thought. And then secondarily, um, I think that the biggest unanswered concerns that at least that were here in Texas when we've had frack fights in the past are really all about health and safety. Um, I think down here we successfully made the arguments about the economics and people agreed and understood um, but they just weren't sure after all they've heard um, from, again, the fringier parts of the green movement who parachute in from out of town. It's never a local organically grown movement. It's coming from somewhere else and from moneyed interests that compete with U.S. energy producers. Um, but those are questions that do need to be answered. If people have concerns, if mothers have concerns about their child being exposed, uh, you know, living, you know, a mile down the street from a frack site. Okay. Um, there does need to be a response. So I'll give you that opportunity uh, starting. So start with the working with oil and gas companies and then move into the uh, health and safety. What, what you think are the biggest misconceptions in Colorado? The, the history that uh, I am most familiar with is the surface owner uh, typically does not know that, he's going to have um, a well drilled on or near his property. And when the oil company comes and says, uh, this is our plan, our location, and this is when we're going to do it. At that time, the property owner has an opportunity to say, what's in it for me? And property owners being property owners have become a lot more sophisticated and they understand what payments, they used to be called damages. Now they're called compensatory payments to uh, pay for perhaps uh, agricultural land that's taken out of production or, or if it snows, uh, the oil and gas company will uh, plow their driveway or build a road or find a location that is acceptable for the well to be drilled and actually put in a road that perhaps the surface owner wants. If it's in a, if it's in a, uh, like a suburban kind of setting, uh, typically uh, we test Whiting certainly did when I was there. We tested the water before we uh, drilled the well. We tested the water while the well was being drilled, and then we tested the water after. And we we have an air, a Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment that will come out on request and test air quality while a well is being drilled. Okay. And typically, typically, or 
predominantly, my understanding is these tests have shown no negative impacts, no negative health impacts on either air or water. But that doesn't that doesn't stop someone from being concerned just because you've read that there isn't a problem doesn't mean that you don't want the proof. And so the proof can be requested and delivered. So that's, one more time, Jack. That's what happens. What's the name of the agency they can contact in Colorado to have the... Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. Okay. Also just called CDPHE. Um, their website is is available uh, on the colorado.org uh, state government website. Okay. And those can be called, as can the Oil and Gas Commission. Uh, the Colorado Oil and Gas um, Commission has a website of its own as well, where a lot of information can be uh, can be acquired. Um, so as this far is, as this is done at taxpayer expense, right? You call them out and they'll do it. Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. There is, there is no, uh, out of pocket costs for the individual to do that. Okay. Um, as far as health and safety goes, I mean, there's been a lot of, uh, discussion about pipelines and a lot of opposition of pipelines. Typically what you hear about is what happened in North Dakota or about Keystone. Um, pipelines are the safest way to transport these, uh, commodities. It takes trucks off the road and, and lowers traffic volumes, and that is always a good thing. But as far as the well site goes, um, there have been tremendous advances um, in health and safety at well sites. It is, it is an imperfect world. There are things that can still happen, and on occasion they do, and those are always learning experiences, and those corrections happen virtually immediately. Uh, when when a mishap occurs, typically it's human error. Uh, typically, it's not. It has nothing to do with uh, the quality of the equipment or the procedures that should be followed. But uh, it is, like I say, it's an imperfect world, and occasionally uh, mishaps do occur. Right. Well, and it's really you know you, we only hear about the mishaps. We re- <laughs> those those make news. We rarely hear about the thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of times that hydraulic fracturing or other energy development is done safely. Uh, You know, my friend from the Pipelines and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration was talking about pipelines, for example. Pipelines deliver hazardous materials safely from point A to point B, something like 99.999997% of the time. I believe that was the number. It was something very, very close to that. And uh, railroads were about 50% less safe at only 99.997 or something something like that percent of the sure. time. Um, and I will just say before we go, uh, one place that I go to get information on hydraulic fracturing in Colorado, resources out there, the latest information on health and safety and whatever's concerning you, um, I go to cred.org, that's C-R-E-D dot O-R-G. I've met the folks there uh, a few times at uh, ALEC meetings and other gatherings in Colorado and it's a very comprehensive website that lays out uh, the different issues that have come up in the Colorado fracking debate, at least since 2014 that I'm aware of and probably long before. So we are out of time. We've been talking with Jack Ekstrom, a friend of mine, and he is up there in Denver, Colorado with PolicyWorksAmerica.com, which is his new venture now that he has retired from Whiting Petroleum, where he was for decades in the oil and gas industry. So he's quite the expert. And my man on the ground in Colorado, when I want information, I go to Jack. I trust him. So, Jack, thank you so much for coming on. And we will be in touch with you to keep us apprised of what's going on up there. You're very welcome, Jackie. My pleasure, as always. Uh, let's not 
make it as long as we did this time. No, no, I don't want happy you to be, to be a stranger. Happy to come back anytime. Excellent. That will happen probably with, with this fight going on in Colorado probably very soon. So you're listening to The Jackie Daly Show.